This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome out there, all you Radcasters. I'm uh, glad you're back here on the show. Today, we will have to excuse Patrick as he has some prior obligations, but you get to listen to me. But fortunately for you, it's not just going to be me talking to you all day. We are going to let you know we've been doing some giveaways and some really cool stuff on Radcast Outdoors. So follow us on the social medias and wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you want to help it grow, sharing, subscribing, telling your friends, we we need everybody we can get because Patrick and I really want to keep her going. We really like doing this. So with no, uh, with no further ado, today I have Mike Arnold. He is a distinguished research professor at the University of Georgia. He has uh, over 150 uh, published articles, a passion for conservation, science, hunting, and wildlife. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thank you so much, David. Thank you for having me on here. No, I'm I'm glad we got hooked up. You actually have a uh, another book coming out here pretty quick. Yeah, actually, it launched uh, today. Believe it or not, so on the twelfth, it launched in uh, of July. We uh, it's called Bringing Back the Lions, and it has a really long second secondary title international hunters local tribes people and the miraculous rescue of a doomed ecosystem in mozambique that's a mouthful but uh, bringing back the lions.com is where folks can go to actually find it on our website and order it or just take a look around at it because they can get a little bit of a blurb about it and see what it's about but uh, yeah the it's been a wonderful time putting it together but uh, Winston Churchill once said and I think and he wrote a lot more books than I have this is number five for me but he wrote a lot of them and he said you know they start out basically as something you love and then by the end they're a dragon you want to slaughter and throw out into the public because you're so tired of them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel uh, so, very uh, similar with our YouTube filming. By the time the film actually uh, premieres and airs and people can sit down and watch it, I never want to see it again. <laughs> well, someone asked me about it. I was listening. We're going to have an audio book version of this as well. There's an ebook, and then, you know, we have the paperback as the big came out today. And, and someone asked me, you know, oh, that must be great to listen to it. And I said, man, I'm listening to my own writing. I'm really, really tired of this right now. So, uh, but I do, I do think it's turned out well. We've had a lot of good feedback from folks. So, well, just a quick start, you know, with a background on how did you, you know, I, I love the books here. I'm excited to read it and everybody should be searching it, checking it out, bringing back the lions. We'll, we'll get into the book a little more here in a minute, but I want to go way, way back, like as far back yeah. as you can remember. How'd you get your start in the outdoors and hunting? Oh boy, it was my dad. Um, and I knew, you know, you and I had, you know, talked about the fact that we were going to talk about my dad anyway, but uh, daddy was a hunter and a fisherman and he loved being outdoors we raised quarter horses we did all sorts of stuff and we were in lived in the country but i um i killed my first big game animal and i can still to this day 
consider it my number one trophy. And this is going to sound weird because I'm in my office and I'm looking at my leopard that I got in Namibia. I'm looking at my mountain lion I got in Wyoming. I'm looking at a kudu. I'm looking at all sorts of mounts. But my number one trophy and will always be my number one trophy was a little doe whitetail deer from San, from San Saba, Texas. And I, I got her when I was five years old. And I was using a little 243. I had to crawl the stock. Uh, Daddy had taught me how to shoot, how to be safe, how to about conservation. And I shot off of his shoulder. I think that's the reason Daddy was deaf in that one ear, to be perfectly honest with you, because I had to do that every time. And But she was my first big game animal. And she still is the one that I remember the most, which is, you know, I'm, I'm 65 this year. So, so it's been 60 years since I took her. And, and uh, so that's how I got started was daddy took us hunting, took my brother and I hunting. And he took us out fishing. He took us, I didn't catch the fishing bug like I did the hunting bug. I'll just tell you the truth. But that's how we got out there was daddy, you know, took us with him. And he took us really young, obviously. So and I'm gonna I'm gonna go off script just a little bit there, and you know, similar kindred spirit. You know, I can you, you come to Bow Spider headquarters, and there's I I would I wouldn't call them um, trophies. I'd call them totems, right? Uh, memorabilia yeah. from some of my most exotic expedition hunts tripping around the globe, right? Because I just, I don't like the negative connotation that that's the only reason we go. And we'll get into the conservation piece. But as as you mentioned those, I've got some of the similar ones, right? And I'll tell you, there's a photo of my oldest when he was three with his arm around my neck and he's holding a little knife, right? And we shot a doe antelope. But to mm-hmm. this day, you know, it was just him and I, we went out. And we, he got to watch from the pickup as dad snuck up and got this antelope. And it was, uh, you know, he come running across the field. I was 200 yards from the truck when we got it hunting some alfalfa country. And, you know, the excitement and the joy and the, you know, just the interaction in nature and with one another is, it's indescribable, right? We, we all either poets or artists or YouTubers or, or authors try and touch on what that means to us of, getting to go out with our dad or getting to go out with our son and enjoy these times outdoors. And it, until you actually experience it, there's, I can't put it into words very well. Can you? I can't either. I can't either. And uh, the added part of my story was that it was the last day, you know, it's one of those, we always wanted on the last day, right. When we're writing about it to build up the suspense, but I had not gotten a deer on this, uh, I guess we were there for about a week, and everybody in camp, and these were folks I didn't know, okay, but everybody in the deer camp put their guns down and drove that doe to daddy and me. They said no one, and a lot of them didn't have deer yet, and they said no one gets to shoot except this little five-year-old boy if anyone shoots on this drive. And to me, that also speaks volumes to how passionate and compassionate hunters are uh, especially towards young young folks getting into the into that company of folks who are hunting so you know it was a it's a sweet memory and, uh, and that's one i hope i never lose <laughs> that memory but uh, yeah that's how i got that was a long-winded uh, explanation but that 
Daddy was the one that got me into it. So how'd you get into writing? You know, I, we, we've got the, uh, how, what started the hunting, and I'm sure there's a lot of stories in between that doe and now, but mm-hmm. how'd you get into writing? You know, uh, similarly, uh, we were a family, uh, mama and daddy, both my parents, um, you can tell I'm from the South calling them mama and daddy, but both of my parents were readers. They read voraciously. They read different things from one another. My mom read a lot of novels. My dad uh, really focused on shooting and hunting and outdoors kinds of, you know, camping literature and books and things like that, magazines. And so I grew up around that and I fell in love with reading. And from there, for some reason, David, I, at the earliest age, once again, I remember sitting at an Underwood typewriter. I'm not even going to try to explain what that is to your younger audience. But, you know, an Underwood typewriter and sat there and wrote stories. You know, I <laughs> There's no back bar, back bar or delete. It's, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's put a new piece of paper in that for the younger readers, right? Oh, that's exactly it. So, and I wasn't very good at it. So, uh, you know, so that's, that's, you know, I wanted to express what I'd seen out in nature. That's what I wrote about were things outdoors. I still remember that. And I, I, you know, I wanted to get them into sports of field and outdoor life and field and stream, you know, the big three. I wanted to get them into those magazines. And I didn't back then. I have now, but I, I, you know, I didn't back then, obviously. But that's how I got started writing was back then was doing that. And then, as I got trained as a scientist, you know, I've, I've written a lot of science articles. I've written four science textbooks and then this fifth book, which is not a, a science textbook. And so I love that. I, I really, really, really enjoy that creative aspect and reliving, you know, what I've seen, I guess. So did your work on the textbooks, your passion for the outdoors, and kind of your college degree culminate in bringing this book to life, bringing back the lions? It, it really did, uh, because uh, the, the book is really a book about how there's a restoration of this entire region in Mozambique through trophy hunting. Uh, through the money from trophy hunters, uh, both men and women, and from donors who are trophy hunters and hunters, and so it's it's about that, but it's also about the conservation of whole ecosystems and the restoration of ecosystems like marshes and swamps and you know sand forests and all these sorts of things that I'm familiar with the biology of. And then it's also about the animals and the plants and that sort of thing, which I've done a lot of research on since, you know, I started in about 1975, actually, as a freshman undergraduate student doing research and field work. And so it, it really has brought it together. But I tell you, it was a very different animal, no pun intended, to write that book because it's a story-driven book. It's not a science book. It's a story-driven book about people and about the animals and about the place and about the local folks being, their lives being regenerated and restored through, through the trophy hunter's dollars. And so, so it's a real different book and a, one that I took a lot of joy actually putting together. But yes, it all, 
it all feeds into that. It really did to, to allow me to be able to write that book. Awesome. I'm kind of pins and needles waiting. And I mean, now today we can go order it, get it and actually get to read it and share it. So I'm really looking forward to it. And I could probably have a conversation discussion for the next five hours about conservation, <laughs> the success stories in Africa. And there's a, there's one point I'll get to in a minute in the dichotomy of kind of the wolf restoration ecosystem here in the GYE and the, you know, elephant lion restoration in Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Namibia. But before we get there too far, I do want to recognize one of our sponsors that we definitely couldn't have our uh, show without, and it's PK Lures. PK Lures, I've been uh, getting to go fishing with Patrick here and there, and that's definitely not my uh, my main forte. Now, uh, Dad grew up, he was the fish nut. He still is the fish, fish nut, but both his boys are uh, much bigger hunters than they ever will be fishermen. Not not saying I, I haven't done or won't go, but if you are going to be going fishing, freshwater, saltwater, you know, any of the trout species, any of the smallmouth species, it doesn't matter if you're northern United States, southern United States, PK Lure has a, has a lure that's going to target the fish you're looking for. So check them out at pklures.com. So back to my point on... There is a, and I, I prefaced it earlier about trophies on the wall versus totems, right? And, yes. you know, we could really get into many hours and hours of discussion on the North American conservation model and how it's been slightly adapted, but still implemented. There's only two places in the world that game species have increased in the 21st century, and it's the North American continent and South Africa, right? But there's some people out there who, you know, say, well, the the Yellowstone GYE, well, since the wolves were reintroduced, they uh, kicked the ungulates off the stream so that the beavers could make better beaver dams so that the floods quit stopping. So now the willows have been restored and the deer and elk are now thriving and flourishing. And actually the hard scientific data numbers will tell you exactly the opposite's happening. We have a predator pit and the, the ungulate population is in free fall. And it has continued to be in free fall. I mean, very specifically, the moose are, and it's not just predators, but the moose are down to 200 total moose in the Jackson Hole drainage, and they had a 1% calf recruitment. Well, 10% is needed just to maintain the herd and 15, 20% to grow. So there's that film out there that suggests that trophy hunting is bad and that unchecked regulation and unchecked wildlife will just manage itself. And while there's some truth to that, it's pretty much a big lie. And I'd like you to maybe tell us a little bit about, because I don't have this, the numbers and data and scientific information, but when I went to Africa the first time, it was night and day. There was two countries similar size, I want to say like Zimbabwe and Mozambique. One banned trophy elephant hunting and one implemented only trophy elephant hunting. They both are similar size geographically, similar size um, human population, and one has over 40,000 elephants and one has 2,000 elephants. And that growth from 1970-something till now is 100% attributed to hunters paying for their South American conservation model. Am, am I very far off on that statement? No, you're not at all. And I, I think that what we have to understand... Um, the North American model, like you say, you know, it's based around an excise tax on everything that hunters and fisher folks do, and especially hunters and shooters, because it's on 
firearms and ammunition and everything else that goes along with that. So, you know, that's the Pittman-Robertson Act that came out in in the 30s. And, of course, as you know, the manufacturers asked for this excise tax, actually went to the federal government and said, we need conservation of wildlife or we're going to lose everything. And so they, they asked and got an excise tax put on, and I mean, it was sizable, 30%. And so, uh, you know, this last year, they had a record distance, you know, uh, disbursement, uh, distribution, yeah, distribution of uh, the money was $1.5 billion, and that goes straight into the state funds. It, it is allocated for four things, and it's all conservation-based, buying land, you know, doing research to figure out how to keep wildlife and wild lands around in North America. Okay, so that's our model. And it works great and has been working wonderfully. And, of course, the, you know, the reason that this last year was a banner year was a record year for dumping it into the state, uh, that money into the state's coffers was because of everybody has that we've had a lot of firearms sales in this country because of concerns and things like that. So we can set that to the side. In Africa, like you've said, that you have to have a value, okay? And you have to have a value of on wildlife that is above the value of if they have some kind of a trophy that, or sorry, a commodity that someone wants, like tusks on an elephant that a poacher would want or that uh, overseas folks are going to want the ivory or they're going to want the rhino horn or whatever, or the meat in the local markets. It has to have a value that allows conservation because it's only going to be conserved if the locals see it as a value above protein for them. In fact, in the Bantu language, this was pointed out to me by Ivan Carter, who's a famous conservationist over there, African conservationist. Ivan said, look, in the Bantu language, which is the root language for most of these places and most of these dialects and languages, he said, meat and animal are the same word. He said, that tells you that people see it as a food source. And he said, there's nothing wrong with that. He said, that's what you guys did in North America. You ate everything with protein when you went east to west. Oh, I mean, yeah, go ahead. The conservation model has been proven, I mean, a dozen times, right? And most recently with the restoration of the grizzly bears in the GYE, that should be, that should be hailed as, as something to celebrate and be like, Hey, bears are coming off the endangered species list, off the threatened list. And they're going on, to the huntable, you know, manageable list. And, and we can look at bison, turkey, white-tailed deer, elk. I mean, and the list goes on. But if you go look at the story of the bison, of the turkey, of the white-tailed deer, of the elk, they were gone. And I mean, by gone, meat market hunting, you, you see some of those old pictures of the towers of bison skulls that they just... And what's sad is back then, that wasn't even trophy hunting. That was market hunting. And they were just shipping the hides. They were leaving the meat to rot, you know? Yep. Yep. And And that's what we have to understand is that this, in Africa, you have developing countries for the most part. South Africa is more developed, obviously, than 
uh, most of the countries around the continent. In fact, probably the most developed, I would say, um, medical care and all that sort of thing. But it's also the most developed, as you as you reflected on, in terms of the game hunting and the game farming. The, not necessarily all fenced or anything like that, obviously, but it is very well developed that way. It's a big part of their economy. So they have value. And so the animals have exploded in numbers, you know, all the different game animals. But it also means that the land is protected. And so the songbirds are protected and the insects are protected and the amphibians are protected. And that's, that's something, yeah, I mean, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation totes that as, as their totem all the time, right? And they're like this many million acres protected. And I, I want to say... It was Ted Nugent that maybe said this, that, you know, in today's society, day and age, and you, you alluded to it, that animal has to pay for its, its habitat. And how does that animal pay for its habitat? And that, that's just plain and simple. And it might sound, I don't know, a little bit barbarian or archaic or rude, but simply put, if that elk cannot afford to pay for its habitat, it's going to be a housing subdivision. It's going to get that, that 3,000 acre ranch going to get subdivided into 30 acre parcels and elk can't tolerate that they can't live there yeah you get a little bit of estes park where there's a few roaming around but that's not the way it's supposed to be no and i i think that the other part of this is that we need to communicate is that it protects wildland uh in africa it protects people and their uh livelihood they're fed they're educated they are you know they're given health medical tree. I mean, in, in the book that I, that we've discussed that I just put out, all of those are talked about, you know, how did it also restore and regenerate people's lives? But the other part of this is too, is that people think, I, I believe that there's a huge number of folks who are not anti-hunting. My wife does not hunt. Okay. She just goes on my safaris with me and is my videographer and photographer, but she doesn't hunt. She doesn't have any desire to hunt. She's not against hunting, but she's a non-hunter. I think there's a lot of folks out there that who are non-hunters. We need to point out to them, look, the older males are watertight. The, if you allow the areas to be poached or to be market hunted, bushmeat hunted, whatever we want to call it, young animals, females, everything disappears. With trophy hunting, the older or you know animals in terms of in Africans, especially the older males are targeted and only a very small proportion. To give you an example, in Mozambique, where I was hunting, they have 3,000 sable. They had 30 when they started. Okay, they had 30 sable antelope in 1994. Through the hunter's dollars and conservation, they now have 3,000 sable antelopes. The only place that is where you have this population of this very glamorous species that's exploding in numbers in terms of the only places you see that is where it's protected by hunting. Well, they have 3,000 sable antelopes there, and 20 antelopes are taken each year. Something like 20 permits are given out, and that's it. Well, that's why the, you know, and those are only the bulls. And only older bulls will be taken. So you're not, you know, in terms of as a biologist, I'm looking at that going, this is a perfect way to conserve organisms. Because you pour that money back in there, you're conserving, you're making sure that the take of the 
that population is not high enough to to push it down. It's not like wolves in Yellowstone that are eating everything and are not ever going, well, you know, the argument is they're not going to call them. Well, they're going to eat everything. I don't know what to tell you. You know, if you don't keep the balance in that kind of a situation, you're going to get it out of balance. And it is. It's just flat out of balance with the wolves. And, you know, I don't know. People, you know, would argue, well, we can't kill them. I mean, they're wolves. Some people will argue that. You say, well, then you're going to lose these herbivores out of this system until the wolves eat it all the way down. And then the wolves are going to spread out or starve to death. I mean, you, you just, just look at the symbiotic relationship between bobcats and rabbits. I mean, the mm-hmm. rabbit has a seven-year cyclical up and down. They just do. Whether whether there's strict hunting in place or not, they just do. Rabbits kind of, mm-hmm. well, are prolific. They eat all their food. Their population crashes. And it's about two years later, the bobcat population crashes. And those two population curves just mirror each other forever. And so there is that symbiosis of prey-predator-food relation. And it's, I don't, I mean, uh, there's, Ranella says it, and I I do agree with it, is, you know, charismatic megafauna. All of a sudden, Mm -hmm. we go from an ugly turkey or an ugly carp, which is in the ecosystem, or a rat or a mouse, up to you know, a grizzly bear or a wolf. And it's like, Oh, we got to change, treat these two species differently. Not really. I mean, they need mm-hmm. habitat, food, water. They need to breed. One thing you kind of alluded to was one thing I, I know scientifically with trophy hunting is by only taking those older past breeding age bulls, that genetic competition within the herd creates the most disease resilient and the healthiest young. So if you have a Take bull elk, for example, you have a large mature herd bulb doing the breeding. All those calves, he's going to be more successful the first time breeding. So those calves are going to drop a month earlier in the season. So they're going to be a month older going into winter, which puts them in better body condition to survive that first year. That's a fact. Yep. Yep. You're exactly right. And and that is that is something that we need to really, you know, emphasize that it when we go out, we have certain permits that we can take a cow elk or we can take a raghorn or a spike bull or whatever, but those are few and far between. And so the emphasis on taking the older animals, whether it's in Africa, whether it's here, is always an excellent model because like you said, it really leads to genetic enrichment because you replace that bull before it has or that that adult before he has the time to breed with his own young or closely related young. I'll, I'll give you a, a story that was told to me about, because one of the things that's in, in my new book is about cheetah reintroduction in this area. So I was talking to this person who uh, is actually, Vincent Vandermeer is the person who does the cheetah reintroductions all over the world. Now, he hunts, but he also understands, you know, conservation really, really well. And so anyway, they were introducing cheetahs into Malawi uh, years ago, and they had two males. One ended up being dominant, as you would expect. One was not. They just, they didn't have a lot of cheetahs put in there. And they were going to put more in. Well, their population exploded, and only one male was producing the cubs. And when it when his first generation of cubs were almost to the point 
where he would start breeding with them, they became obviously very concerned because they didn't want that kind of uh, breeding going on, that inbreeding going on because of disease and that sort of thing and, and genetic maladies. And I said to him, so did he end up breeding with his cubs? And he said, nope. And I said, well, what happened? He said, a crop got him. Oh, well, that's one way of removing him from the population. He said, well, he said, look, we didn't want to lose him. We would have darted him and gotten him out of there. But he said, a crocodile took him. And he said, then the sub, the, the subservient male, okay, the, was able then to move into that position. And he said, we have genetic enrichment in that population. Well, it's the same way for hunters. As we take out the older individuals, like you said, we're going to end up with that kind of genetic enrichment because the the less dominant are going to move into that dominance position. And that's what we want, you know, in nature. That's, that's exactly what we want. So what happens to the African? Because I've heard, I've talked to, you know, I just got done going to Africa and we podcasted earlier about it and there'll be a YouTube film from, you know, because a lot of people think that, us hunters are just the Disney Disneyland redneck hicks that don't have any kind of education or understanding, and we just go around and slaughter animals. But what happens to specifically South Africans' conservation model if hunters quit coming? And let's be honest, 80% of the hunters are from North America. Well, I mean, you can ask, the you know, you just talk to the South Africans, and that's in the government as well as, you know, hunters and non-hunters. I mean, they recognize that if we stop coming, that land, those animals will have no value and they will be removed. They will be uh, eliminated and they'll turn the land back over to the way it was, say, prior to 1980 and for the large, you know, when they started their game farming. And, and, and what that means is that they will turn it into agricultural land of a different sort and they will raise angora goats or whatever the heck, you know, cattle, whatever fit wherever they are. But Mm -hmm. that's what will happen. And the only place that you will have any wildlife will be in small pockets where they're not able to, you know, maybe, you know, in an area where you just, you know, they're not going to hunt them out or whatever, but they're still going to have to support themselves off of something, which means that they'll introduce agricultural species like goats and cattle, et cetera. The only place you'll have wild species then will be in fenced parks. And those are increasingly damaged areas like Kruger and places like that. They're just under so much pressure because now they're not allowed, for example, to remove elephants. And the elephants are just turning those areas into sites that look like a bomb crater. And because politically, you know, it's they're they're not allowed to shoot them or and they can't, you know, someone said, well, why don't they just, you know, dart them and get them out? It's, it's, people don't understand the cost, the economic cost of moving something like an elephant. And so the bottom line is there's just not the money there. Once again, they're not, you know, they're not supporting themselves. And, and that's, so that's, I've said that several times, whether you're a birder or a photographer or a nature observer, you know, go, go shake a hand of a hunter and say thank you. 
because mm. with, without that hunter, that mallard duck doesn't have a marsh, that elephant doesn't have a park, and that grizzly bear doesn't have ungulates to eat. And that's a fact. It is. It is exactly a fact. And and what was pointed out to me when I was doing research for the book too, and one of my one of my buddies over there, who's a wildlife veteran in Mozambique, is a wildlife veterinarian. And one of the chapters on him is on him. And he is a non-hunter, okay? And he is, uh, he's not an anti-hunter, but he is a non-hunter. And I said to him, if you were given, because he has an MOU with Mozambique government for doing all of their transplants and human, wildlife, conflict things. That, I mean, his organization does everything. Well, I was there, he was starting elephants and all sorts of different things so we could put collars on them and and uh, do various kinds of research projects there in Mozambique. But anyway, I asked Zhao, I said, if you were given, you're you're a non-hunter, right? And he said, yes. I said, if you were given the power, if the government in Mozambique, and they could actually do this because of his standing, if, if they came to you and said, should we change and turn all of the hunting concessions into parks for photographic, use only would you recommend that i asked him that i just wanted to hear what he said he said it would be a disaster and i was intrigued and i said why why would it be a disaster he said mike what you need to do is get in a helicopter and fly over any uh, economically viable photographic area that brings in enough photographic tourists from around the world and most of them are going to be from north america probably and look at the landscape. He said it is a desert because they drain all the water from the water tables to get the animals to pans to certain areas so that photographers can get their photographs. And he said it's interlaced with roads to move that many people around, and it's interspersed with huge housing complexes or hotels for housing because he said you have to have that many people. He said, as opposed to a hunting concession like we were in, Katata 11, where we were, where he said they want very few roads so that there's more habitat for hunting. And he said they don't have to bring in very many people because they spend so much. So he said, he said, I would never, he said, if I was going to do anything, I would do the opposite to what you just suggested. And he's a non-hunter. He mm-hmm. said, I have no desire to ever hunt. But he recognizes the value of hunting concessions for conservation of both the habitat and all of the associated animals, not just those that we hunt. So if somebody wanted to get into starting to write and do some field observations, what would, you know, cause I'm sure they go hand in hand. You, you're as a hunter, you're, you're always observing everything. You're, you're basically the next level up from the photographer or the poet. You're out there, you're observing nature, but you're connecting in a deeper way. But, to get your start in writing, what's some advice you'd give somebody that's thinking about writing a book? Well, if they're thinking of, of writing a book on uh, natural areas or biology or hunting or fishing, you you just, you know, you have to feel it, right? I mean, you and I both know this, whether you're, because you guys film so much, I, I just don't do this. Uh, you know, I don't do filming well in, in the sense of technically, but the, you, to capture that, 
in the writing, um, I had to be in Mozambique. So use the book as an example that just came out. I had to be in Mozambique for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and be around the animals and the ecosystems and the, and hunt, you know, do some hunting. Now, I did more interviews and with folks and got into people's lives and so I could tell stories than I did hunting. But it's still, get out there. You have to get out there into nature. You have to be smelling the smells. You have to be seeing the sights. You have to be listening and hearing to be able to put it down on paper. I would also recommend that people start in terms of writing Start by writing articles, and it's it's a you know in terms of I'm a freelancer, and um, you know it's I was it was described to me by another freelancer and a buddy of mine. Well, actually, Craig Boddington uh, described it to me, who's got a quote on our on my book on the front on the front cover. But anyway, Craig is real well known as a hunter, obviously, and and you know, won the Weatherby Award and all this sort of stuff. And he said, look, it's the hardest life in the world at one level, but he said it's the most blessed life in the world at another level. And he said, I, I, you know, can't believe I get to do this. And I think that that's the thing for folks is if you have that passion, get out there, hunt, shoot, fish, whatever you're doing, and write about it. And write the feelings and write the smells and sights and, and the funny things and the crazy things and, and sometimes dangerous things, I suppose, uh, that there is an inherent danger in some of what we do. Uh, I think that's overblown at times, but, but still, you know, there are times when uh, one of the chapters was, you know, in this book is about a leopard collaring and we got charged by a huge male. He tur- was turned by the dogs at four feet away from us. That's probably the closest I've gotten to being whacked by something out, out in nature. So, <laughs> so you know, you write, about, you, you write about that, you know, you write and say, what did it feel like? What did it sound like? What did it, you know? So I think that my major thing is whatever you're going to write about, you got to experience it, I think. Uh, especially if we're talking about outdoor riding. You you really have to get out there. And there's something about that connection with nature. You know, I've read and watched the man-eaters of Tosavo several times. Tosavo, mm-hmm. what, how do you say it? It's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. about the uh, the British colonies putting a, a railroad bridge and, and colonizing Africa, and a couple lions just turned into man-eaters and, and ate everybody. But, you know, now mm-hmm. Hollywood dramatized it a little more than it probably was but when i was in africa this last go around chasing cape buffalo we heard a leopard and you know the some of these i guess wives tales or stories that get exaggerated well if you're there firsthand they were scary enough and i I tell you that on my cape buffalo hunt i was i I was ready to be out of there (laughs) i was too I, I, you know, I've wondered about your story. I know this is supposed to be a podcast where I'm yakking a lot. I am, but boy, I wanted to hear how in the world you went after a Cape Buffalo with both. Whew. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I met up with Dries Weiser, Dries Weiser Safaris in South Africa, and he's one of a, a handful that are there. Dries Senior started in '77, and before that, he was. Uh, he was professionally hunting, I want to say, in oh, Botswana, maybe. They were leaving for six months a year to go. He was a professional hunter guide. 
and they kind of said, Hey, let's, uh, let's start raising animals here and start a ranch at home. And then his son's like, well, I only want to do bow hunting. And so I've met Drees the last couple of years and with COVID, with the reduction in hunters, they're, they're needing conservationist hunters to come over there. You look at the, uh, the impact of, uh, I don't even want to say it, but Cecil the lion with the dentist, you know, and, and the ban mm-hmm. on the sighties and, and lion hunting. And, and the outcome of that was they brought in the army and shot 200 lions and let them lie. Right. Yeah. And at yeah. $50,000 a lion, that was a lot of conservation money that just got burned yeah. in a pile. So, but I spoke with Drees. I went to Africa nine years ago on a Safari Club International banquet hunt that I purchased. And I've all want that was just a planes game, 100% in the blind. And I wanted to go do spot and stock. I mean, very simply, yep. the first time I went, I was more of a, I guess, luggage passenger, more just of kind of a nature observer, not a nature engager. You know, they, when I shot my first kudu, 10 guys showed up, loaded it up, hauled it off to the skinning shed. We went the other direction, went hunting for different critters and got back to camp at night. And as a public land DIY hunter, you know, I do all my, all my own elk, all my own bison, all my own moose. And we hike miles in and, and take every ounce of that meat goes in a backpack on my back down to the truck. And we bring it home. We butcher it ourselves. Cause when you're talking eight, nine, 10, 11 tags a year, the butcher is too expensive per pound for us. So in, in our household, if, if you're having dinner at my house, nine times out of 10, it's going to be elk, antelope, or mule deer. We, we're very fortunate yeah. where we live. But back to Africa, I told, told him, I said, if I'm coming, you know, and this, this is a great intro, my company needs spot and stock. I said, it doesn't do me any good. And I, I'm not the person to sit in a blind. It, I've forced myself as I've grown up to be more patient, but as a young man, I was the the kid that was three ridges away, still chasing the elk that was running away from me. So <laughs> he said, if I wanted to come do spot and stock, that I needed to come in May. And if I came this year, he'd give me a little bit of a discount. So I hopped on a plane six weeks later, and I spent that next six weeks scrounging to build a bow-arrow combo that would be sufficient. The uh, broadhead ended up um, not getting any penetration, whether it's the broadhead or my shot or whatever, you guys will see it on film, but no, I just wanted to go back. And why did I want to go back? I mean, there's a lot of people I've talked to. Oh, I'd never go to Africa. I'd never hunt a high fence. And if you fly over that area, you're not really hunting a high fence. Drees, while I was there, traded a sable bull. You know, he, he had not traded, but on his auction had bought a sable bull and had it delivered and turned it loose in his breeding herd. Right. And they are breeding for the absolute biggest because they're selling either a live animal or a dead animal, but they either way, that bull only contributes to the herd if he's huge. If he's small, they're taking him out, and they're going to let those breeders so that they have really strong genetics, and that's going to secure that that species indefinitely. So yeah. it took us seven days to spot and stalk at Cape Buffalo. I honestly thought it was going to be easier than it was, and I drew my bow back three times under 40 yards, shooting a almost 80 pound bow, 77 pound bow with a 675 grain arrow, 200 grain broadhead. And I couldn't shoot much past 40, 50 yards. It just 240 feet a second is a slow, heavy arrow. So the last evening we, uh, we set up in a likely ambush spot and had two bulls come by and I took a shot and then, uh, it was subsequently followed up with a rifle five times and a dog and a lot of, uh, chaotic running and, (laughs) 
and people moving <laughs> in and out. It got very dynamic very quickly. But well, I, I, go ahead. I'm looking forward to yeah. No, that's I wanted to hear. I mean, we the area that I hunted in Mozambique. Uh, now Mozambique banned uh, bow and arrow hunting for or arrow uh, bow hunting for uh, dangerous game. Uh, I believe it was just dangerous game not that long ago. Uh, yeah, it was dangerous game, but uh, they're trying to get it back on the books. It was just a political mm-hmm. boo boo, to be honest with you. But they they uh, in this area up until when I went last year, they had been bow hunting Cape buffalo. So and they have huge numbers of Cape buffalo there, and it's all spot stocks. So. And, and why bow hunting? Because in that week of hunting, I got within rifle range a hundred times. I only got within mm-hmm. bow range three times, and when you're 28 yards from an animal and pulling a string back there's you can see my pin is steady and my bow's steady and i'm i was being a little bit of ice man ice veins but once that arrow flew i was like get me out of here this is you know and you <laughs> anybody that's gonna go do it i would highly suggest have an exit strategy right you, you don't want to have that whole herd whipping their tails and throwing their heads up in the air and, and be coming at them and, and poke one because you might have the whole herd come after you. So lone bulls are your friend if you're going to go bow hunt Cape Buffalo. There you go. <laughs> so that does give us into our next sponsor real quick, and that is Bow Spider. And, you know, I started this company because I had a passion for the outdoors and for hunting. And I'll be honest with you, Mike, I could go start a a foundation dirt work company and make more money, right? I could go into... Mm in some sort of product R&D into the IT tech center and make more money. But I don't get to share my passion with the world and, and be who I am. So thanks, Bo Spider, for for supporting the, the podcast and for supporting this and, and obviously paying for us to go Cape Buffalo hunting because that was, that was awesome. There you go. So in your mind, you know, between hunting in North America and hunting in Africa, what are, what are some of the differences and what are some of the similarities? Uh, similarities are, I'll start with those, is that uh, I, I find that hunters, uh, whether here or in Africa, are just a neat community of folks. For the most part, you know, they are, because they're passionate and right where they want to be and having just such a great time, they're very giving, they're very uh, welcoming. And they they love to hear stories. You know, we all tell stories to one another, and they we just sit around the, the campfire, whether or not it's in Wyoming or in Mozambique, and we we chat about the day's events, and we just love retelling and reliving those. And so, I think that the hunters, in that sense, the community uh, are very similar, depending uh, regardless of where they're from. You know, I mean, in Mozambique, I met you know I had. We had German hunters in camp. We had South Africans. We had Mozambique. We had, you know, from all over the world, actually, French, Netherlands, et cetera. So it didn't really, it wasn't just that they were all from the U.S. Uh, The difference is, I think the major difference, I suspect you found this too, is that when you, well, when you do anything in Africa, if you're with Africans, um, you do it as a group and you know, there are multiple folks there. So you're not going to, uh, as a visitor, especially you're not going to be out without your pH, but you're also not going to be out without your pH trackers, 
in most places, uh, game guards and that sort of thing. So Africans are used to uh, doing everything in groups. Uh, and it, it's basically a family unit for you while you're there, you know, your pH, your trackers, et cetera. Over here, we tend to not do that, right? I mean, we tend to go out by ourselves or we tend to go out maybe with a buddy, but then we're also hunting by ourselves. Uh, sometimes we have a guide, uh, but it's just going to be one person. And so that group dynamic in Africa, I find fun, uh, but very different, you know. And the other thing, and I, I'm no good at tracking, okay? I'll just tell you that. Spotting, game spotting, and game tracking in Africa are really developed into an art form, as far as I can tell. You know, they, they do amazing things. I have pretty good eyes. I can spot stuff once I get a, an image in mind, but tracking, no way. No way. I just, and you you may be a great tracker because you're a bow hunter. I just don't track worth a flip. But I, I have never seen anyone be able to track over here as well as I've watched trackers in Africa do it. You know, yeah. looking at bent grasses and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, Mike, before I went over there, I would I would consider myself advanced to say the least, right? And once I got over there and got introduced to this, this time we were with Ben. I mean, and you, you hit it right on the, hit the nail right on the head was, uh, you know, we had a cameraman, we had two PHs for dangerous game. They each had rifles. We had the tracker and then the truck driver, right? So there's five or six of us rolling around all day chasing this Buffalo. And my favorite part was going back to the campfire because my dad and brother were in camp and there was another hunter in camp. So we'd all share the day's stories or tell old stories or, or, or just enjoy the camaraderie and, and smiles. And, you know, I'm sitting on the ground one day for lunch because we got to the point I said, I'm not going back to the lodge for lunch and a massage. I'm, I'm here to hunt, right? Give me, give me a cold sack lunch and let's go hunt. Well, I'm sitting on the ground right next to my tracker and the driver and the pH, and we're just having you know, a tribalistic huddle, eat our, eat our cold lunch sack and go. And, and the joking and the laughing and the camaraderie. I, I, in a seven days, I created lifelong friends, right? They're well, kindred do, spirits. Yeah, That's why I could create lifelong friends in seven days is because of that. We share that passion and similarity. I don't care what the creature is. I don't care what the continent name is. If you're a hunter, you're a hunter, period. Mm-hmm. And, it, and uh, the camaraderie is built up around the events whether we get the animal or not. And that's here or over there. You know, I mean, that's the amazing thing, I think, some folks, is that, you know, you pay, you know, you pay that big amount of money. Well, you might not have gotten the Cape Buffalo, but you still paid the money. You didn't, maybe you wouldn't pay the trophy fee, but, you know, people are perplexed by that. And they say, hey, you spend all this money, well, you always get it, right? And I'm like, no, you know, not at all. I mean, we fail as often as we, you know, in a lot of, especially over here when you're, <laughs> say, doing public land hunts for elk, for heaven's sake. I mean, you know, I mean, we could, uh, you know, success rate is, is not guaranteed, but we love being out there, pursuing the game and trying to outwit it, and we get beaten. And at times, but if you disconnect, you get a chance to connect, and that's just I can't Absolutely. put it more simply. Absolutely. So tell me about your dad 
and some of the hunting and conservation that was passed down to you. What was some of the things you picked up early from him? Well, uh, that we were always really careful about limits. We followed the law. Uh, as a bloodthirsty five-year-old, obviously, or eight-year-old, or nine-year-old, or ten-year-old, I would have loved to have been sometimes. I would have loved to have, you know, just shot everything. And Daddy was a stickler on saying, you know, there are limits for reasons. We want to have the birds, quail, dove, whatever the, you know, ducks, whatever the heck we're hunting, deer. We want to have them for next year, and we want to have them for next season. And we want to be able to see them and hear the quail calling to us and all this in our backyard during the off season. He said, we're not, you know, you can't shoot everything. So he taught me conservation without actually ever using that term. I mean, he never used the term conservation that I remember, but he was, um, that's exactly what he was passing on. Um, his, you know, in terms of hunting, we ate, we weren't that wealthy at all. And so we lived off of, you know, you said about your family, we lived off of white-tailed deer. We lived off of ducks. We lived off of, of morning dove. And we lived off of quail sometimes. The population there was up and down because of raccoons and stuff like that and skunks and things like that and really decimated ground, ground, um, birds so we uh ground nesting birds so but we lived off of wild game we didn't eat a lot of pork or beef or whatever uh just simply because we didn't have a lot of money to do that so he also taught me that the utilization and the love of prop i know this sounds crazy but i have you know in my garage right here uh next to my office i have my hook and hanger for processing my own deer. He taught me how to process deer. And of course, you know, the smaller stuff too, the the quail and the ducks and everything else. And I really fell in love with the every you know, all the way from the field to the freezer. And he really transmitted that as well. Uh, that love of it's not just going out and shooting something. It's presenting it and then cooking it. You know, I also like to cook and cooking it for your family. And, you know, that chain really means a lot to me. I, I get a real charge out of being able to go out and hunt, get something, and see it on the table later on. Uh, I, that just brings me a lot of joy. So he he didn't just teach us to shoot. He didn't just teach us to be marks, marksmen. Uh, at whatever level we are, my brother and myself in particular, but he taught us, you know, these these skills that are associated with it, so that everything was utilized, everything was conserved, and I I just can't speak enough about what he did in those in that way. And I um, we're not going to get too deep into it, but I imagine there's a a strong connection between that respect for life that you know ingrained was ingrained in you at a young age, right? The just just these basic principles that you know weren't hadn't been scientifically proven or studied or researched just hey the limits are set here we're doing it this way and you know you've taken a life you're going to do everything you can to utilize as much of that resource that you just harvested right yep and i think yeah, and I, I, absolutely ahead. i think the young people of today need to get back 
put put the put the video games down and get back into the woods. I think that's that's what our society is missing is that disconnect to reconnect. I, I believe getting outside and you know that that it is a struggle, you know, for parents too. I mean, we we struggled with it. It's sure easy to give your kid a handheld video game or a, you know a phone or whatever that's going to babysit for you, and um, I think that's tragedy because then you're you know, your kids are missing out on and children are missing out on what you and I grew up with, which was getting outdoors and just being blown away by what's out there. You know, not even necessarily hunting, but just being blown away by nature and, uh, you know, seeing this stuff, it it just always captivates me wherever I am. So, So, you know, as these outdoor activities, you know, we've had, we've had a good little bit of uh, recruitment, via COVID and it's the one activity Mm -hmm. that didn't get shut down. But as you know, we have this exponential increase in potential in in participation. Do you see any challenges to conservation hunting, you know, in in the future as we, as we have this changing landscape in the outdoor industry? You know, I do, we do have a changing landscape and I think that, I think we have to communicate the passion for and the compassion for wildlands and wildlife and and really explain how hunting benefits what you and I have been talking about. Why do we have white-tailed deer in Georgia? We they were extinct, okay? And and they started reintroducing them in the 1930s. Now we have I don't know what what the current estimate is, it'd be million and a half or whatever white-tailed deer. Why do we have turkeys back? Why do we have, you know, state-run conservation efforts? And why is that there? And we need to keep emphasizing that, like you have done already during this podcast, that that it's because of hunters. It's because of hunters and shooters and, and people buying fishing licenses, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that the challenges, I do see challenges, but I think there are so many folks out there who I believe are not anti-hunting and who understand, can understand the truth in that argument. We don't have to make up the data. The data are there. And we can just point to species after species after species that are back simply because of hunting and selective hunting not market hunting and not poaching and not doing, you know, whatever. And so I think that, uh, will there be challenges? Yeah, there could be challenges to saying, well, we want to close this area to hunting so we can just have folks who are going to go hike, you know, allow folks to go hiking. And we have to push back against that. And I can tell you the state, the states will push back against that because they will say, wait a second, the only, these are being conserved because of hunting. You know, they're, WMAs or whatever y'all have in Wyoming, you know, public land. They're being conserved because of hunting, not because of hikers. Now, I love, I love backpacking. I'll just tell you. I mean, I've got my backpacking stuff. We, you know, just close to me in a closet. I love backpacking. I've done it since I was 18 years old. And I love putting a pack on and just heading out into the woods. But I can tell you that I'm not the one supporting those woods when I'm doing that. The money that I put into those backpacks, et cetera, are not going for the conservation of those species. They're just not. I'm not arguing against backpacking and hiking and things like that. Not at all. I'm just saying that's not where that's not why we have them. And people just need to understand that. 
Oh, Mike, and I would fully attest and agree with you. I went all the way through the scouting program and went all the way up through Eagle Scouts. And, you know, part of that last year was uh, as a venture going going on the 50 miler, right? We backpacked and I love mm-hmm. backpacking. Yep. And I, I got like seven backpacks and that's my, my, my bread and butter is a DIY backpack hunt, right? I'm there doing the same yep. things you would be doing as a backpacker. But once I get to the top of that summit and take that picture of, hey, look, I was here. Then I pull out my high-powered binoculars and look around and go, how are the animals utilizing the landscape and where are they and what are they doing and why are they doing? And yep. I'm I'm so much more connected with that specific landscape than any hiker will ever be. And and I can't I can't really explain it. You know, and there's a dichotomy there yep. of, you know, how can I as a lover of nature harvest nature, right? And we've we've touched on several reasons, but you know, I would say I'm I know elk more intimately than the biggest elk lover you've ever met. Why? Because I eat, sleep and breathe elk hunting. And I just, yeah. ever since I was a little young boy reading the back, the, the articles in the back outdoor life and field fish and stream, right? I mean, we got fur fishing game, we got field and stream, we got outdoor life. And it was Saturday morning uh, when, when cartoons were off, the very first, you know, mid nineties, we had some hunting shows on TV and they weren't very good. And I got kind of mad when Bill Dance with fishing came on i was like well that's my hunting show for the week okay well I'll, next week i'm like i grew up with my dad in the pacific northwest i saw enough fishing for for the rest of two people's lives <laughs> right but how can yeah. how and and you you said it is you know an admirer and, and just i mean it's there's something that gets ingrained in a hunter chasing whatever species and so that that leads me to to a question if you had to pick one species and one weapon to only pursue the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, it's easy for me. I, I don't get to do it very often. I sure don't do it the way you do it. But I would I would hunt elk, and I would use a uh, custom, stocked, custom-built, uh, pre-war Mauser rifle. Uh, it's in 35 Wayland Improved, and it's a, it was a custom-built rifle that my dad gave to me. I could not believe he gave it to me. Uh, it's probably—I mean—the action's probably hundred years old now, or a little bit more. And I actually used it to take a Cape buffalo, the only one I've ever shot. But I've uh, harvested a couple of elk with it. It's a wonderful, wonderful, just a beautiful rifle too. But I would hunt elk, and the reason I would hunt elk—number one, I love the eel. But I, you know, the the reason I would hunt elk is I fell in love probably the way you did as a kid, uh, the paintings I would see, the illustrations I would see in hunting magazines or Jack O'Connor books or whatever. And then when I got to hunt them and I was in the Aspens or I was in the Pines or I was in whatever, but in the West, I grew up in West Texas, uh, though I live in, I've lived in Georgia since 89 and probably I suspect I'll die here, but I love the West. And so I, I would hunt elk. As long as my legs would allow me to get up the mountains, I guess, and uh, that—that's what I would do. And I would enjoy eating the elk too. <laughs> so, if you had to prepare one piece of wild game, what's the recipe? How how would you procure it? How would you cook it? You know, what is it going to be? What am I eating at your house for dinner? Well, you would you would eat. You know, now now I. I 
in our questionnaire, I mentioned moose, and I love moose, but I've never hunted them, believe it or not. A buddy of mine keeps giving me moose that he hunts, and, and I love that. But you at my house, if I was allowed to hunt elk like I want to be able to get out there and hunt elk, uh, you would end up with a fillet, and you would probably have back straps that is opened up and filleted, and then you would. I, I am southern as southern can be, and I would chicken fry that. I would. I would probably pound a little bit. I would chicken fry. It would be very simple: salt, pepper, and I would chicken fry that. I would add mashed potatoes and cream gravy. You didn't ask me this part, and. Um, Probably some English peas because that's the way Mama used to cook our venison, and that's the kind of meal she would make. And I just fell in love with it. But I love elk the best. <laughs> well, I know you being down there from the south, you've got lots of spices and seasonings to put on that that prepared elk backstrap. But one of our sponsors is yeah. High Mountain Seasoning, and whether you're doing fish or game or just store bought burger. They have, I mean, they have yep. such a wide selection and they also have a whole bunch of tools for the guy that's doing their own game prep, whether you're making jerky or summer sausage kits or even mm-hmm. bacon or ham. So, you know, big shout out to High Mountain Seasoning. They're right here in town and they too, I mean, they're sold globally. They are a great product They're Patrick and I, you know, a lot of people ask, you really use that stuff? I'm like, I used it before and now I use it even more, right? So whether you're making <laughs> pepperoni sticks, I mean, the the ones that we've talked about before several times is we do a lot of jerky. We get enough animals here now at, at the uh, old bow spider household that uh, if you're having steak, we're probably having backstrap. When I first started hunting in Oregon, and I'll throw them under the bus another hundred times on this podcast, and lots of guys know why uh, they're mismanaging their conservation very badly but uh we make a lot of front shoulders are now just pretty much hamburger right that's just the way it is Mm -hmm. we'll pull Mm -hmm. some roasts off we'll back straps for steaks and then we we do a lot of burger because we have a lot of meatloaf and spaghetti and you know meatballs but the kids really like the the uh ground jerky shooter sticks and the recipe is so simple you mix the seasonings and spices to proportion you chill it for 24 hours you take they basically have like a big cock gun with a wide tip you squirt it on wax paper you can either put it in a smoker or in the oven and those kids will eat pounds and pounds and pounds of that now me on the other hand i like the whole muscle jerky i like to slice a big rump roast into thin slices sprinkle the same stuff on it in the refrigerator 24 hours and then smoke it whole. But I like to chew on it a little more than the kids do. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's good. Dad doesn't have to compete with them. Then. Yeah. So I know the, uh, the, uh, other listeners out there, the little bit of fishing you do, what kind of fish are you going to go catch and what kind of fish are you going to cook and eat? You know, um, I've lived in Australia for six years. I saw that, you know, we were talking about that question and, and so I'm going to be biased. Uh, towards ocean fish right now and and so i would if i was going to get to choose or when i get to choose i get red snapper and i stuff it full of wild rice mix and i grill it and i i tell you what i love that so now growing up we ate everything from the little what we called catfish but but uh you know, the channel cat that we had, we ate bluegills, we ate smallmouth, largemouth bass. And so, and once again, everything in the Arnold household then was fried. 
<laughs> so, so I'm not sure. You know, we had uh, lots of red eye gravy with all of our bitters and this stuff. But yeah, with the with the fish, it was always deep fried. So that's what we grew up on. But I I tell you what, if I had my brothers and they said you can only eat fish every night, I could probably eat red snapper every night. So that one's a little bit weird, but probably for folks. Well, I love the quote here on your release, and it says, uh, a small group of people, a little money, and a big idea that can save the globe, right? And having yep. hunted, next on the list is is uh, Argentina and uh, New Zealand for me. I want to do stag and I want to do dove, but there might be some fishing in both those places because New Zealand has some trout, and uh, there's a Dorado in in Argentina that I want to go chase. So, but Absolutely. You know, this, this idea, and we've kind of beat around the bush the whole time, but if, if you're a hunter, you need to be inviting your, your non-hunting friends and neighbors and just take them to elk camp, take them to duck camp, take them, take them as a, on the photo safari to Africa with you. Because I think that's, there, there's one, there's, there's one end of the spectrum that is adamantly never going to hunt. And they're going, I've heard them say very plainly that they'd rather the government come in and kill 99 animals than one hunter take one and they just, they don't understand and they, they never will. They'll never be reasoned with. You could show them all the science and data and, and talk all day until you're blue in the face and they're not going to listen to you. But I think by taking a kid or even an adult on scent hunter and say, well, you don't have to hunt. You can just come photo safari and recreate and hang out. I mean, yeah. I know Dries Weiser does a great job of husband wife teams where the wife is a, a more of a photographer they'll take you on their wild game side that hasn't seen any hunting pressure and won't see any hunting pressure. And I mean, they're, they're much more, much more photogenic on that side of the ranch. So that's definitely, you know, there's an aspect there that even though it's quote unquote supporting hunting, the, like you mentioned before going into Kruger, you might as well go into to Disney world or Disneyland. And it's, it's just not fun you go on one of these hunting concessions and you go out there and it's you and your wife for the week and she's going and getting photos of everything. It's, it's amazing. So definitely I challenge everybody. And if you're the the non-hunter that came across this podcast, you know, I think hopefully that Mike's passion and my passion for elk specifically, but all wildlife has, has come across. So what is next on the horizon for you, Mike? Well, uh, heading to Spain in the fall uh, to uh, do some research and write some articles about Spanish ibex conservation through hunting. Uh, they brought their ibex back from near extinction to uh, incredible healthy populations just on the backs, again, of trophy hunters. And then next June, June of 2023, I head back to Africa. I'm going to go to South Africa and do a mixed uh, mammal. <laughs> Actually, it's going to be uh, black wildebeest uh, in in the Eastern Cape, and their bushbuck there, and then also do bird hunting, uh, upland bird hunting there, what they call upland bird hunting. And I'm going to write up uh, some articles on that, just talking about a different, uh, this is not a fenced area at all. Uh, the area that I'd hunted in South and I have no problem with fenced areas, by the way, as long as they're managed well and large enough. But anyway, I'm going to be doing that. And then I go from there to Mozambique on that trip to write an update 
for sports afield on the cheetah reintroduction uh, there in Mozambique. I did one on the lion reintroduction for sports afield, and uh, they would like one on the cheetah reintroduction. So I'm going to do that. So that's what I'm doing. If uh, if you are going to South Africa, you know, support those. Don't support any put and take ranches, right? Don't support any 500 acre hunting concessions. Yep. Go support the guys that have hectares and hectares and hectares. And, and, you know, like my Cape Buffalo, he was born, bred, grew up and died on the same property, but he never knew there was a fence there. Yep. That's right. Go with a qualified guy. Yeah. I mean, the area that I hunted, uh, when I went, uh, my very first trip, um, like yours was, was a Plains gang trip, but I hunted mostly on the property. It was Wildcott Safaris is who, who I went with. Uh, my brother, I, uh, you know, found them and they have a hundred thousand acres, you know, and I, I never saw a fence. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big chunk of land. And you, and there's lots of properties like that where like the one where you hunted, you know, it's just, they're, they're expansions. Uh, they're huge ranches is what they are. So they make the Texas ranches look, they dwarf them. They make them look tiny. Oh, tiny, tiny, tiny. Yep. Absolutely. But I, I'm, I'm glad you're out there, you know, you know, trumpeting the uh, conservation horn and, and carrying on what your father kind of instilled in you. And it's, it obviously has come through in this podcast. I am excited to read the book. If people want to get in contact with you, if you want to get the book, where do they go? How do they get, get after you? Well, uh, my, my own website is MikeArnoldOutdoors.com. And that's just one word, <laughs> no spaces. And if they do that, they'll get to the website that's just in general. But the book, the page where they can go and purchase the book is BringingBackTheLion.com. And that's all together as well. No, no spaces. Bringing back the Uh They type that into their web browser, and it'll pop it up, and then they can purchase it right there. And then, is there any social medias? Yes, uh, the social media is uh, Mike Arnold uh, Facebook. So it's Mike Arnold Outdoors, and it's uh, the Facebook is. Got it right here, Facebook. Yeah, it's Arnold Outdoor Writer. Actually, I'm sitting here. You know, this is something that's interesting to me. There's a quote off of an Indiana Jones movie from Sean Connery. He says, I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm getting closer to that. Have, have you ever walked into a room and forgot why you walked into said room? I, I, I've done that. I do that a little bit. But anyway, so my Facebook is, is facebook.com forward slash Arnold Outdoor Rider. And so if they do that, they'll get to my Facebook uh, as well. But, uh, yeah, the Mike Arnold Outdoors, uh, they can get there, and that's my website. And it's got the blogs on it, and it's got everything else. All of my reviews for firearms and and equipment and things like that are on that uh, Mike Arnold Outdoors. So, All right, you guys, you heard it. He's got 150 other articles out there. He's got some some rather, um, I, I, I won't say, I, just a different topic book from this book, but this one I'm, I am excited to get and read. And I really want to say thanks for coming on the podcast. You know, listeners are going to enjoy it, and we couldn't have this without your time. So appreciate your time today. 
Hey, thank you so much, David. This has been just a real blast. Thanks. Mike, thanks for coming. Check out the book, Bringing Back the Lions, and you know, start supporting conservation at your own place. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.